Chapter 4, Part 1 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of the Feudal System, Part 1. It is impossible to understand, with any degree of accuracy, either the civil constitution of this kingdom or the laws which regulate its landed property without some general acquaintance with the nature and doctrine of feuds or the feudal law, a system so universally received throughout Europe upwards of twelve centuries ago that Sir Henry Spellman does not scruple to call it the law of nations in our Western world. This chapter will be therefore dedicated to this inquiry, and though, in the course of our observations in this and many other parts of the present book, we may have occasion to search pretty highly into the antiquities of our English jurisprudence, yet surely no industrious student will imagine his time misemployed when he is led to consider that the obsolete doctrines of our laws are frequently the foundation upon which what remains is erected, and that it is impractical to comprehend many rules of the modern law in a scholarlike scientific manner without having recourse to the ancient. Nor will these researches be altogether void of rational entertainment as well as use, as in viewing the majestic ruins of Rome or Athens, of Baalbek or Palmyra, it administers both pleasure and instruction to compare them with the drafts of the same edifices in their pristine proportion and splendor. The constitution of feuds had its original from the military policy of the northern or Celtic nations, the Goths, the Huns, the Franks, the Vandals, and the Lombards, who all migrating from the same Officina Gentium, as Craig very justly entitles it, poured themselves in vast quantities into all the regions of Europe at the declension of the Roman Empire. It was brought by them from their own countries and continued in their respective colonies as the most likely means to secure their new acquisitions. And, to that end, large districts or parcels of land were allotted by the conquering general to the superior officers of the army, and by them dealt out again in smaller parcels or allotments to the inferior officers and most deserving soldiers. These allotments were called fioda, feuds, fiefs, or fees which last appellation in the northern languages signifies a conditional stipend or reward. Rewards or stipends they evidently were, and the condition annexed to them was that the possessor should do service faithfully, both at home and in the wars, to him by whom they were given, for which purpose he took the juramentum fidelitatis, or oath of fealty, and in case of the breach of this condition and oath, by not performing the stipulated service, or by deserting the Lord in battle, the lands were again to revert to him who granted them. Allotments thus acquired naturally engage such as accepted them to defend them, and, as they all sprang from the same right of conquest, 
no part could subsist independent of the whole. Wherefore, all givers as well as receivers were mutually bound to defend each other's possessions. But as that could not effectually be done in a tumultuous, irregular way, government, and to that purpose subordination, was necessary. Every receiver of lands or feudatory was therefore bound when called upon by his benefactor or immediate lord of his feud or fee to do all in his power to defend him. Such benefactor or lord was likewise subordinate to and under the command of his immediate benefactor or superior, and so upwards to the prince or general himself. And the several lords were also reciprocally bound in their respective gradations to protect the possessions they had given. Thus, the feudal connection was established, a proper military subjection was naturally introduced, and an army of feudatories were always ready enlisted and mutually prepared to muster, not only in defense of each man's own several property, but also in defense of the whole and every part of this their newly acquired country, the prudence of which constitution was soon sufficiently visible in the strength and spirit with which they maintained their conquests. The universality and early use of this feudal plan among all those nations which in complacence to the Romans we still call barbarous may appear from what is recorded of the Cimbri and Teutons nations of the same northern original as those whom we have been describing at their first eruption into Italy about a century before the Christian era. They demanded of the Romans, ut martus populus a liquid sibi terre deret, quasi stupendem caeterum, ut develet minibus atque armis sui uteretor, the sense of which may be thus rendered, they desired stipendary lands, that is, feuds, to be allowed them, to be held by military and other personal services whenever their lords should call upon them. This was evidently the same constitution that displayed itself more fully about 700 years afterwards, when Sally, Burgundians, and Franks broke in upon Gaul, the Visigoths on Spain, and the Lombards upon Italy and introduced with themselves this northern plan of polity, serving at once to distribute and to protect the territories they had newly gained. And from hence it is probable that the Emperor Alexander Severus took the hint of dividing lands conquered from the enemy among his generals and victorious soldiery on condition of receiving military service from them and their heirs forever. Scarce had these northern conquerors established themselves in their new dominions when the wisdom of their constitutions, as well as their personal valor, alarmed all the princes of Europe, that is, of those countries which had formerly been Roman provinces but had revolted or were deserted by their old masters in the general wreck of the empire. Wherefore, most, if not all of them, thought it necessary to enter into the same or similar plan of policy. For whereas before, the possessions of their subjects were perfectly allodial, that is, wholly independent, and held of no superior at all, now they parceled out their royal territories, 
or persuaded their subjects to surrender up and retake their own landed property under the like feudal obligation of military fealty. And thus, in the compass of a very few years, the feudal constitution, or the doctrine of tenure, extended itself over all the Western world, which alteration of landed property, in so very material a point, necessarily drew after it an alteration of laws and customs, so that the feudal laws soon drove out the Roman, which had hitherto universally obtained, but now became for many centuries lost and forgotten, and Italy itself, as some of the civilians with more spleen than judgment have expressed it, Belluinas atque ferinas, imenesque longobodorum legis acipit. But this feudal polity, which was thus by degrees established all over the continent of Europe, seems not to have been received in this part of our island, at least not universally, and as part of the national constitution, till the reign of William the Norman. Not but that it is reasonable to believe, from abundant traces in our history and laws, that even in the times of the Saxons, who were a swarm from what Sir William Temple calls the same northern hive, something similar to this was in use, yet not so extensively, nor attended with all the rigor that was afterwards imported by the Normans. For the Saxons were firmly settled in this island at least as early as the year 600, and it was not till two centuries after that the feuds arrived to their full vigor and maturity even on the continent of Europe. This introduction, however, of the feudal tenures into England by King William does not seem to have been effected immediately after the conquest, nor by the mere arbitrary will and power of the conqueror, but to have been consented to by the great council of the nation long after his title was established. Indeed, from the prodigious slaughter of the English nobility at the Battle of Hastings and the fruitless insurrections of those who survived, such numerous forfeitures had accrued that he was able to reward his Norman followers with very large and extensive possessions, which gave a handle to the monkish historians and such as have implicitly followed them to represent him as having by right of the sword seized on all the lands of England and dealt them out again to his own favorites, a supposition grounded upon a mistaken sense of the word conquest, which, in its feudal acceptation, signifies no more than acquisition, and this has led many hasty writers into a strange historical mistake, and one which upon the slightest examination will be found to be most untrue. However, Certain it is that the Normans now began to gain very large possessions in England, and their regard for feudal law, under which they had long lived, together with the king's recommendation of this policy to the English, as the best way to put themselves on a military footing, and thereby to prevent any future attempts from the continent, were probably the reasons that prevailed to effect its establishment here and perhaps we may be able to ascertain the time of this great revolution in our landed property with a tolerable degree of exactness. For we learn from the Saxon Chronicle that in the 19th year of King William's reign, an invasion was apprehended from Denmark, 
and the military constitution of the Saxons being then laid aside, and no other introduced in its stead, the kingdom was wholly defenseless, which occasioned the king to bring over a large army of Normans and Bretons who were quartered upon every landholder and greatly oppressed the people. This apparent weakness, together with the grievances occasioned by a foreign force, might cooperate with the king's remonstrances and the better incline the nobility to listen to his proposals for putting them in a posture of defense. For as soon as the danger was over, the king held a great council to inquire into the state of the nation, the immediate consequence of which was the compiling of the great survey called Doomsday Book, which was finished in the next year. And in the latter end of that very year, the king was attended by all his nobility at Sarum, where all the principal landholders submitted their lands to the yoke of military tenure, became the king's vassals, and did homage and fealty to his person. This seems to have been the era of formally introducing the feudal tenures by law, and probably the very law thus made at the Council of Sarum is that which is still extant and couched in these remarkable words, Statuinos ut omnes liberi omnes, poedre e sacramento affirmen, quod intra et extra universum regnum angle Vilelmo regi domino, suo fideles esse volunt, terras et honores ilius omni fidelitate, ubique servare comeo, et contra inimicos, et talieni genus defendere. The terms of this law, as Sir Martin Wright has observed, are plainly feudal, for, first it requires the oath of fealty, which made in the sense of the feudists every man that took it a tenant or vassal, and secondly, the tenants obliged themselves to defend their lord's territories and titles against all enemies foreign and domestic. But what puts the matter out of dispute is another law of the same collection which exacts the performance of the military feudal services as ordained by the general council. Omnes comites, et barones, et milites, et servientes, et universi liberi homines, totius regni nostri predicti, abente tenant, se semper bene in armis et in equis, ute decet et uporte, et sint semper prompte et bene parate, at servitium sum integrum nobis explendum, et peregendem cum opis fueret, secundum quod nobis debente defiodis, et de tenemente suide jure facere, et de sicutilos statuimos per comin consilium, totius regne nostri praedicti. This new polity, therefore, seems not to have been imposed by the conqueror, but nationally and freely adopted by the general assembly of the whole realm, in the same manner as other nations of Europe had before adopted it, upon the same principle of self-security, and, in particular, they had the recent example of the French nation before their eyes, which had gradually surrendered up all its allodial or free lands into the king's hands, who restored them to the owners as a beneficium or feud to be held to them and such of their heirs as they previously nominated to the king. And thus, by degrees, 
all the Olodio estates of France were converted into feuds, and the freemen became the vassals of the crown. The only difference between this change of tenures in France and that in England was that the former was effected gradually by the consent of private persons. The latter was done at once all over England by the common consent of the nation. In consequence of this change, it became a fundamental maxim and necessary principle, though in reality a mere fiction, of our English tenures that the king is the universal lord and original proprietor of all the lands in his kingdom, and that no man doth or can possess any part of it, but what has immediately or immediately been derived as a gift from him to be held upon feudal services. For this being the real case in pure, original, proper feuds, other nations who adopted this system were obliged to act upon the same supposition as a substruction and foundation of their new polity, though the fact was indeed far otherwise. And indeed, by thus consenting to the introduction of feudal tenures, our English ancestors probably meant no more than to put the kingdom in a state of defense by establishing a military system, and to oblige themselves, in respect of their lands, to maintain the king's title and territories with equal vigor and fealty, as if they had received their lands from his bounty upon these express conditions as pure, proper, beneficiary feudatories. But whatever their meaning was, the Norman interpreters, skilled in all the niceties of the feudal constitutions, and well understanding the import and extent of the feudal terms, gave a very different construction to this proceeding and thereupon took a handle to introduce not only the rigorous doctrines which prevailed in the Duchy of Normandy, but also such fruits and dependencies, such hardships and services as were never known to other nations, as if the English had, in fact, as well as theory, owed everything they had to the bounty of their sovereign lord. Our ancestors, therefore, who were by no means beneficiaries, but had barely consented to this fiction of tenure from the crown as the basis of a military discipline, with reason looked upon these deductions as grievous impositions and arbitrary conclusions from principles that, as to them, had no foundation in truth. However, this king and his son William Rufus kept up with a high hand all the rigors of the feudal doctrines. But their successor, Henry I, found it expedient, when he set up his pretensions to the crown, to promise a restitution of the laws of Edward the Confessor, or ancient Saxon system, and accordingly, in the first year of his reign, granted a charter, whereby he gave up the greater grievances, but still reserved the fiction of feudal tenure, for the same military purposes which engaged his father to introduce it. But this charter was gradually broken through, and the former grievances were revived and aggravated by himself and succeeding princes, till in the reign of King John they became so intolerable that they had occasioned his barons or principal feudatories to rise up in arms against him, which at length produced the famous Great Charter at Runningmead, which, with some alterations, was confirmed by his son Henry III and though its immunities, 
especially as altered on its last edition by his son, are very greatly short of those granted by Henry I, it was justly esteemed at the time a vast acquisition to English liberty. Indeed, by the farther alteration of tenures that has since happened, many of these immunities may now appear to a common observer of much less consequence than they really were when granted. But this, properly considered, will show not that the acquisitions under John were small, but that those under Charles were greater. And from hence also arises another inference, that the liberties of Englishmen are not, as some arbitrary writers would represent them, mere infringements of the king's prerogative extorted from our princes by taking advantage of their weakness, but a restoration of that ancient constitution of which our ancestors had been defrauded by the art and finesse of the Norman lawyers rather than deprived by the force of the Norman arms. End of chapter 4, part 1